0: This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide.
1: State Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent.
0: We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies
2: will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia.
0: Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country.
1: And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And PK, we're going to be talking about the economy a little later because there's been some dire forecasts for the global economy and what's the impact here on the Australian economy in the lead-up to the budget. But first, we find ourselves talking about The Voice again this week because uh, a big moment of the week was the moment when Julian Lisa, who's the Shadow Indigenous Affairs Minister, announced he would quit the Shadow Cabinet because he feels compelled to actively campaign for a yes vote in the referendum on the voice to parliament. Now, last week we talked about Peter Dutton committing himself and the Liberal Party to campaigning for the no case. Uh, he bound his front bench to that position, which was a bit unexpected. And by denying his shadow ministers a conscience vote on the issue, he really put Julian Lisa in, a, in an untenable position, because the backstory to this, for, for people who don't know, is that Julian Lisa has been on this journey with the voice... Since its start, really, when he announced his resignation, he made the point that he was there as an architect of the voice at the very beginning, before he was even a member of the parliament. So his decision to resign from the front bench followed Ken Wyatt's resignation from the Liberal Party of this issue. And we're going to be joined soon by James Masola, who's National Affairs Editor at The Age and the City Morning Herald. He's been reporting a lot on the factional balance inside the coalition party room and, and how the position on the voice might reflect that. But PK, the immediate upshot in in the wake of the pronouncement by Peter Dutton last week is not one, but two Coalition Indigenous Affairs spokespeople making a stand against their leader and their party over this issue.
0: It's quite a big thing. Anyone who knows Ken Wyatt knows that he is you know, like a thoughtful, methodical worker, quite loyal, a true Liberal in my view, quite conservative on many things, but he obviously felt pretty let down at the where this landed and the binding position for no that Peter Dutton's um, decided on. What we're seeing in the Liberal Party at the moment, even though the majority of that party room is definitely um, in favour of the position that Peter Dutton has taken, we now have, I think, fractures in the in the political Party of the Liberal Party, which are going to be difficult for Peter Dutton. We've got Simon Birmingham, the leading moderate, who has said on the record that he won't be campaigning no, even though the party has a binding position for no. How tenable is that? We have Karen Andrews, who also said this week she won't be campaigning no. She said that on RN Drive. We had an interesting interview on afternoon briefing with Paul Fletcher on how he would be voting at the ballot box. These are moderates that. Clearly, don't feel
1: like they can operate in this environment. I don't think we should overstate the fractures yet because I don't think Julian Lisa's move necessarily amounts to trouble for Peter Dutton in the short term or even those positions from Simon Birmingham, Karen Andrews, Paul Fletcher and others because I think it's still very limited in how far they're taking it. I mean, Julian Lisa has been at pains to praise Peter Dutton's sincerity on this issue and to assert his ongoing loyalty to the Liberal Party. So I don't think we're anywhere near that territory. Some might remember Julia Gillard hit in the dying moments of her leadership, dying months really, when there was a string of ministers who either quit or were sacked. I mean, That was a front bench riddle with disunity. We're not there yet. No, no,
0: I'm not arguing that Peter Dutton's leadership is in trouble, but the Liberal Party as an organisation that can have the wets, as they were called. uh, The the smaller liberals, we like to call them. That's it. All together and having the right to advocate their, their positions. In choosing not to allow those people a conscience vote, that now puts those people in a difficult position and also makes it very difficult, I think, to even think about winning any of those teal seats back. I mean, that's what Trent Zimmerman told me on RM Breakfast. He said, yeah, he just mm. doesn't doesn't see how you can.
1: If I look at the type of Liberals that we lost, the type of Liberals that we need to attract, the people that we should be attracting, then this will be a seminal moment for them. And I think we'll be on the wrong side of that debate with that, that part of the Australian community. And I think it's notable how different this um, management of the party room by Peter Dutton is to say the management of John Howard, who used to talk frequently about the broad general to the Liberal Party, even as he concertedly moved the Liberal Party to a more conservative um, position on the spectrum. Um, but moderates within his party room were, many of them co-opted to senior front bench positions like Robert Hill, Amanda Vanstone. So they were bound to some degree by that cabinet solidarity. But even so, moderates often spoke about ha- having a good sounding, John Howard always giving them a good sounding, allowing some of them, Petro Giorgio and others, to cross the floor without any sort of rancour because he understood the importance of that kind of release valve, if you like. I just want to actually
0: say something on the point you made about John Howard. Let's actually tell tell the story of why Peter Dutton has taken this position. John Howard on this one said that there shouldn't be a conscience vote or a free vote. He did. That's the advice he provided. And I've spoken to many people who say that Peter Dutton was very persuaded by John Howard. He looks up to John Howard. He was a junior minister in the Howard government. That's how long he's been around, in the early 2000s. So actually, John Howard has shaped where this has gone in many ways. Look, we're going to talk more about that, the factional fractures, what it means for the Liberal Party with James Masola. But Fran, I also want to go to another story from this week, the continued thaw in China-Australia relations. Now, Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who was acting Prime Minister this week, announced that the Australian government had suspended its appeal to the World Trade Organisation over Beijing's decision to apply tariffs to Australian barley. In exchange, China reviewing the tariffs. Now, that could take a few months. I think it's four months they've got now, which is a pause button. And if you know if they can't get anywhere, obviously they can restart that. Here's how Penny Wong explained the decision.
1: This is a good step, that, that China is willing to expedite its review. What I've said to the former and current foreign ministers is that it's in both countries' interests
0: for these impediments to be removed. That was the foreign minister and acting Prime Minister Penny Wong. Now, Fran, if China doesn't resume trade, presumably Australia could just unpause the appeal and continue proceedings at the WTO? So this seems quite strategically sound, yeah, is
1: it? I think so. I don't think it's suspending to China at all. I think it, this is how deals are done in the WTO and how the WTO prefers it for countries to come together. By putting this process into the WTO framework, Australia, in a sense, has forced China to the table. So China whacked 80% tariffs on our barley. So our grain growers really want the Australian government to try and break this impact pass and be able to trade with China again. It's worth a lot, a lot of money for them. So it's definitely progress. We've also had this week a senior Chinese official uh, in Canberra meeting with the uh, Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Jan Adams. So there's more evidence, growing evidence, I think, PK, of the unfreezing of relations as it's talked about. And It's important to note that this all happens in the recent wake of the AUKUS agreement, which China was not happy about, also the ban on TikTok across Australian government devices. So what we're seeing is, you know, Australia trying to thread that difficult needle of strategic interests versus our economic and trade interests, and we need to do both. Penny Wong will give an address to the National Press Club on Monday, and I, I imagine it'll be, you know, a broad speech about foreign policy, but with particular pointers to our place in the region, our interest in broadening relationships in the region to sort of offset, I suppose, that notion that Australia is there in that alliance, that, that white Western alliance that, that AUKUS represents in the eyes of some.
0: Yeah, that's going to be a big moment, actually, that Monday speech. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> James Masola, National Affairs Editor at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome back to
1: the party room.
2: Good to be with you, PK.
1: Hi, James. Great to have you. Hey, James, the Liberal Party is making all the headlines this week, really. We've just been talking about the resignation of the Shadow Indigenous Affairs Minister, Julian Lisa, over the party's binding no position. Let's just have a listen to Julian Lisa speaking on RM Brecker here.
2: I found myself in a difficult position, so um, I had to look and, and make a decision to be consistent with what I've always said on this, which is that I do support the voice, and that, we, given that we've got the referendum, that I wanted to vote yes. I
1: wanted to say to my children... But it's important in politics to be able to stand for something even when it costs you. So that's what he did. He stood up for his values. He said, I support the voice. And uh, therefore, he couldn't possibly be bound by that shadow cabinet solidarity. So he stepped aside. That followed, of course, Ken Wyatt quitting the Liberal Party over the party's hard no stance. James, you've been taking a close look at the makeup of the Liberal Party room. Do the factional numbers there help us understand why Peter Dutton made this decision to bind his front bench, or is this just a reflection of the type of leader he is?
2: No, I think the factions, uh, you know, are a key guide to this, uh, Fran. I mean, what I found in in sort of talking to, I think it was 53 of the 66 Liberal MPs who are in the federal parliament, is there's an overwhelming majority of people in the what's called the national right or conservative faction, and then the sort of centrist and centre-right faction who are overwhelmingly opposed to this constitutional change. And then even when you look at the moderates, there's 14 or so of them, in the party room now after you know all those uh, MPs lost their seats to Teals, some of them are opposed to this change as well. So I really think it was a bit of a no-brainer of a decision in the sense of uh, settling the horses in the party room, if you like. But what it has done is create a difficult moment for Dutton in that he's lost Ken White, as you alluded to, he's lost Julian Lisa, and his party is potentially out of step going on what the published opinions polls say with the Australian people in opposing this. Because at the moment, you know, The Voice has at least a reasonably strong majority support.
0: Politically, why is he doing this? Is it just because this reflects his party room or is this has this now become political that it's about trying to destroy Anthony Albanese and his investment in this?
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's a big part of it, uh, PK. I think he's got all the chips on the table now. In, in in sort of banking on a successful defeat for this referendum campaign. I think if he would allowed a free vote for his front bench, which is what some people were advocating, which is what John Howard did on the referendum uh, on the Republic in 1999, it would have allowed a pressure, that sort of, it's a pressure valve, it would have allowed Lisa to stay on the front bench, but it would have angered a, a sufficient number of people on his back bench, his key supporters, that it, it probably would have created in more, like, greater internal problems for Dutton than it was worth him um, having, essentially. That's why we've ended up in this position.
1: These factional balances, they're delicate things though, aren't they? I mean, we've got Shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham now, the most senior Liberal moderate there in the party room, is saying he won't campaign for the no vote. So it's a little unclear to me what that means. Is he just going to lie doggo for the whole campaign? I'm not sure. But it, you know, underlines the difficulties. It reminds me a little bit all of this. Remember the time when former Liberal Minister Christopher Pine, who was a moderate, declared that the moderates were back in the winner's circle and that audio was leaked? <laughs> That sort of crowing by Christopher Pyne really launched a fight back by the, the right faction within the Liberal Party. It's not often healthy when factions flex their muscles to the detriment of the other side, is it?
2: No, absolutely not. That was um, a, a, a major misstep from Christopher Pyne that enraged you know, people like Tony Abbott on the, co- the conservative side of the coalition who were in and the And Peter Parliament Dutton, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really damaged the party, as you say, it elevated the factional divisions and it caused major problems for you know several years to come until Turnbull lost his leadership.
0: Look, obviously the majority supports this, but either way, a lot of voices who are unhappy. But either way, there's a vacancy now and a reshuffle that has to be organised. The opposition needs a new shadow minister for Indigenous Australians, also a new shadow minister for uh, the Attorney General portfolio. It could be split, and there is a big push uh from really you know leading coalition figures people like Peter Credlin who of course is now a sky um commentator but was previously the chief of staff to Tony Abbott some key figures saying that Jacinta nuppajimpa Price uh, the senator who's actually a national should be appointed to that portfolio what do you reckon do you think she's going to get the job is she is she the front runner here Look,
2: I do think it's the most likely outcome, Patricia. I, I'm told from the calls I was making uh, yesterday and over the last couple of days, um, Michaelia Cash, Michael Suka or Paul Fletcher is most likely to get Shadow Attorney General, you know, to add it to existing responsibilities probably. It's split, And then, you know, Indigenous Australians, the Shadow Ministry is split off and it goes to dis, to Jacinta Price. Karen Little, the South Australian Liberal Senator, is an outside chance as well. But the issue here, and you've just touched on it, is... Um, Jacinta Price sits in the Nationals party room. They're already overrepresented with six shadow cabinet spots when they really should have five on the sort of proportionalities. To put Price in, either the Nationals uh, would have to remove someone, say a Kevin Hogan, who's the shadow trade minister, Mm. or Dutton will have to expand the shadow cabinet, which he can do but which will put Liberal noses out of joint because it will mean the Nats are even more overrepresented. So it's not obvious how he threads the needle here.
0: No, it's not obvious. Look, opposition leader Peter Dutton, since the original announcement, which we talked about last week, um, that he would be on the no side, he's really stepped up his opposition to The Voice. Now it seems to me, at least a week in, uh, that he's kind of the chief campaigner of the no side. His press conference this week was a real full frontal assault. It will cost billions and billions of dollars. It will require literally thousands of public servants. Why is he doing this? Because I'll tell you, I'm genuinely confused. I thought his strategy was all about cost of living, which I thought he he may get traction on at some point. It is going to be a hard year, and we're going to get to that actually in a moment. But he's investing a lot in being chief no. Why? Why?
2: Look, I think there's a couple of things at play here. I think Peter Dutton is modeling his uh job as opposition leader on Tony Abbott. He's got I think it's a it's either 8 or 9 former Abbott staffers in the opposition in his opposition leader's office. I think they're taking a similar political approach. Um you're right that we are starting to see the Liberals pivot to cost of living as an issue, but I think the Aston by-election showed People aren't blaming the government for the um, difficulties in that space at the moment. So I think it's essentially um, he's running a maximum oppositionalist, if that's a word, playbook, and that's why he's taken up the cudgels in the way that he has. If I could just circle back for a moment to something that Fran said, it's not just Simon Birmingham who is, if you like, sort of running dead uh, in not campaigning for the no campaign. From the moderate faction. There's a couple of others that really stand out. We haven't heard from Maurice Payne, who's obviously very senior. We haven't heard much, if anything, from Jane Hume, another leading moderate. Paul Fletcher wouldn't say, I think it was on afternoon brief, briefing on the ABC the other day, how he would vote personally. And even people like sort of Angie Bell, Richard Colbeck, there's a few moderates who are very conspicuously quiet, uh, quiet yeah. at the moment. And I think they will probably continue to be, we'll obviously endeavour to flush them out. But it, it's an interesting dynamic at play. And Karen
0: Andrews was on our um drive I mentioned that before with Fran but and was also um not enthusiastic about campaigning for no so it is it's going to be hard isn't it if it's only sort of half of them
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's almost a test of, over time, it will almost become a test of loyalty, personal loyalty to Peter Dutton. And I know, and I'm sure you've detected this, both of you as well. There are some people in the party room who are very quiet at the moment, who are questioning this all out opposition strategy and saying, look, this is not thinking, uh, we're not saying it publicly. This is not a space that they should be playing in. There are uh, 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 better political fights to be having than this one.
0: Now, I mentioned we were going to raise this. I'm going to go there. The other big story this week has been the rather dire global economic outlook reflected in an International Monetary Fund report. They've stated that the world economy is facing a perilous phase, Oh, deep breaths. With global growth forecast to drop to two point eight percent in 2023, and also that Australia's GDP growth uh, will more than halve to one point six percent in 2023. Now, this report has just landed prior to the May budget. The Treasurer Jim Chalmers now is at the G20 finance ministers meeting in Washington. As we, you know, record this, he's in in the US. And, and he, he spoke to RM Breakfast before he left. He, he didn't mince his words about the difficult position the global economic outlook placed Australia in. Here he is. Oh,
2: of course, it's still possible. And it's still the expectation uh, of the Treasury and the Reserve Bank uh, and a number of other uh, economic forecasters here in Australia. Uh, but we need to be upfront with your listeners, Patricia, and say that a slowing global economy matters to us a great deal. And we do expect our own economy to slow considerably.
1: Okay, that's the treasurer. Do you think he's softening us up here or is this just, you know, a matter of reality? I remember Wayne Swan going to the the G20 um, before the GFC and coming back and really having sort of Putting, you know, and Kevin Rudd too, um, having steely resolve in the face of what was happening in the world to the budget here at home. What do you think's going on here?
2: Oh, I think we are being softened up. To go back to that, um, Wayne Swan in, um, I think it was '08, wasn't it? David, you ran in Lenore Taylor's book, Shitstorm from the Time, mm. really makes clear that that was a turning point for Swan where he went, oh, good, oh, goodness, you know, yeah. we're in some serious trouble here. I think we might be at a similar moment. It's probably a little bit too early to say, but, you know, the IMF has revised down our growth forecasts. Um, You know, they're they're now below what was forecast in the October budget. They're below the last IMF update. Um, We obviously are seeing difficulties in terms of high fuel prices as a result of the war in Ukraine. We're seeing pressure from high interest rates. We've had a one month pause. They'll probably still keep going up. Chalmers has to thread the needle in this budget of providing support for households, which he says over and over again that that's their key focus, but not in any way contribute to an increase in inflation, which has started to moderate in the last uh, the last set of figures we saw down to 6.8, but it's still way too high. So we can't see, we're not going to see an easing of interest rate uh, pressures anytime soon, but people are doing it tougher and tougher. So how do you put more money in the system without increasing inflation? That's Chalmers' challenge.
0: Yeah it's a pretty it's big not challenge. An easy one. Yeah, it sure um, is. Hey, glad it's his job. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, the treasurer also you did confirm there'll be some concessions for households in the budget. But you know, you say that you you refer to that book and that moment for Wayne Swan, who of course uh, Jim Chalmers worked for. Um and and that being a key moment. But this is a tricky one, right? Because anything you do uh, puts pressure on inflation. There's there's a list. There's a long list of demands on this government of things it needs to deliver. The treasurer keeps talking about the things they've already promised relief for energy bills, some of these other things. But are they going to have to go back to the drawing board about maybe cost of living relief for particularly really vulnerable? Uh, you know, those on fixed incomes, pensions, uh, unemployed people like. This is potentially really difficult, this period, for those people.
2: Yeah, look, that's right. A key one, I think, is the um, increase in childcare subsidy. And, you know, having a couple of kids in childcare, I, I will welcome that increase when it arrives in July. That's the sort of thing that doesn't necessarily cause inflationary pressure. But, you know, there's 750000000 million that's been promised for the hospital system. That's, you know, an increase, but that's not going to be enough in the view of the states. There's massive pressure, um, you know, as we all know, to increase defence spending. Now, that's not inflationary, but that takes money out of the pie, you know, that the government collects in, uh, collects in the form of taxes that can't be spent elsewhere. So as you say, I mean, you could see an increase in pensions. They're already, obviously, they rise in line with CPI. So that impost on the budget is rising considerably anyway. How you increase those without increasing inflation <clears throat> and forcing more money to wash through the system. I don't know. I, I th- Again, I think to you, you've touched on, PK, help with electricity bills will be key, um, but his hands are tied. There's not mm. a lot of money to throw around.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a really tough budget for Jim Chalmers to get right because even things like the childcare or the energy prices, which he's talking up, you know, they've already been announced and, in, and we know what voters do with that. They hear the announcement, they sort of bank it even though it's not there yet, so they want... You know, we all want some more. We want more, please, and and there's probably no more to be given. Um, the you know you mentioned earlier that the cost of living, the the prime minister hasn't really been blamed for that yet. That's what that was a wash up from Aston really. Peter Dutton counting on the cost of living um, helping deliver the win to the Liberals in Aston didn't happen, and the uh, the analysis suggests that really. Voters aren't blaming the Albanese government yet for that. But that will change, and probably I think that will change quite dramatically uh, in terms of honeymoon status after this budget, this full budget. Where does that, and how's that factoring into Anthony Albanese's thinking, the suggestion is he's not going to take up the invitation to go to the NATO summit this time? He went last time, soon after he was elected leader. Um, is that because he, you know, if if he looks at the future, he's campaigning this year on The Voice, he's got... Cost of living pressures hurting the electorate. He doesn't want to be seen to be not focusing on the domestic.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think he's mindful of the fact his May is is crazy. Um, I, I'm going to get, I probably get this slightly wrong, Fran, but um, if I'm correct, I think the coronation of King Charles is three days before the federal budget, sixth, and then it? Yeah. is it six? Yep, and then no, 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 got, it's
0: on the sixth, isn't oh, it?
2: Sixth? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's the Saturday, um, and then there's a G7 plus summit that he's been invited to in Japan um, that he sort of has to go to. There's a quad leaders meeting here. There's a Biden address to parliament. So I think the PM has two or three trips overseas in May, which is obviously that crucial budget month. Um, I think he'd be reluctant to be seen to be doing too many other trips. That might be what's undergirding the decision or at least the equivocation on the NATO summit.
0: For sure. Hey, James, thanks for letting us pick your brain and joining us in the party room.
2: Yeah, pleasure. Thanks so much, guys.
0: Thanks, James. Keep doing those
1: party room numbers. We love it.
2: We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order.
1: The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question is from Ted. Ted asks, given the significant change to the political landscape since the last referendum, where there was roughly a 50-50 divide with the two major political parties, and they now only pull about two-thirds of the vote, do you feel that bipartisanship is now as important in getting the referendum over the line it, as it was in the past. Um, PK, I'll throw that to you, but <laughs> I, I would note that I'm not sure that the primary vote, the major parties, you know, were at 50-50. It was quite that stark. There still was a vote for the Democrats for sure and there still were some balance of power players um, or, or minor parties anyway, but nothing like the split that we've seen at the last election, that's for sure. It's definitely diminished hold that the two major parties have on the electorate these days.
0: Oh, massive. Like, there has been an erosion of the major parties. We know that as a fact. Look, I reckon this question um, is really important. The Yes campaign, um, and the Prime Minister has even said this now on the record, they all believe that because there has been a shift and the electorate shifted a lot that the conditions the old do, you know dogma about what leads to success has shifted and so the the theory go and it's only a theory because we haven't been able to test it we will know after october of november what what is the reality But the theory goes that because people aren't rusted on, they're not going to listen to a Liberal leader or a Labor leader like they would have. And so that shifts the dynamics for a referendum, the idea that you need both... Uh, sides to be at one um, changes it. Now, I think th- that does uh, personally sway me a little that I do think there's been a shift. I also think demographic shift is big. Uh, I don't think the electorate is anything like it was in the late 1990s. I think we have had a digital revolution since. So the way people obtain their information is also radically different. So I think there are so many changes that Anyone who predicts right now, as we record on this Thursday morning in April, what's going to happen at the end of the year in this referendum in such a volatile political environment when there are economic headwinds and all sorts of things, is, is just going to be wrong. Just, I just think there are so many factors at play, but bipartisanship isn't the political gold it once was, although... You'd be taking anything, wouldn't you, um, to have success and you wouldn't say no to bipartisanship. But I don't think it's necessarily the deal breaker it would have been in the past.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think bipartisanship obviously gives you more wind in your sails if you're sailing towards a position to, with everyone united. Um, I think it's true that the major parties don't have the same influence on the broader electorate as they, as they did. Um, But the one thing I would say is that by Peter Dutton, I think you described it in the podcast, PK is becoming almost the the chief campaigner for the no. It means we've got this very much still stuck within the political paradigm. So the political fight continues and might dominate the whole campaign of this referendum. And that could affect the outcome, I think. That's, that, that's what I see as the the danger here to the Yes campaign is that Peter Dutton has made this very much a, a political, an ongoing political clash.
0: I think people are going to get sick of um, hearing the, you know,
1: ye- a yelliness about Conflict this.
0: fatigue. Yeah, they have it. We know they have it. So anyway, we'll see because I just think it's, as I say, since the late 90s, I just don't think Australia is anything like it was in the late 90s. So I think to, the comparisons are pretty thin. Now, send your questions in because we love getting them. We especially enjoy receiving voice questions, which you can email to Room at abc.net.au and you can find that in the show notes in case you missed it.
1: And remember, follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows you to feedback, allows reviews, go on, get in there, give us five stars because it really helps other political diehards and everybody find us and we love that. Well, that's it for The Party Room this week. See you, Fran. See you, PK.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.